Hello, you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. My name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today we're going to be talking about Clint Eastwood. Specifically, never heard of him. <laughs> we watched two of his movies High Plains Drifter and White Hunter Blackheart. Now, this is actually not one of my picks. Why did you want to do an episode on Clint Eastwood, Will? Because he's an American icon. And uh, yeah, he's, I, I think, I, I can't think of anybody who's been a bigger star for longer than him. And one that almost nothing of any kind of substance has been written about. I feel <laughs> like he's taking kind of for granted when you talk about Clint Eastwood, because it's like Clint Eastwood, he's a cool guy. Well, I, he's he's somebody who the French critics have sort of embraced over the years for as representing America or whatever. Uh, he's somebody who, even though he's there's a certain limit to how many movies he's made that i'm really all that enthusiastic about he's someone who has kind of an amazing body of work just in the sheer scope and scale and mass of it well what was surprising when i was looking over the films that he made is i always pictured him as someone who did a bunch of like different stuff throughout his career but that's not really the case when he became a director he actually didn't really start handing off the reins to other um, stars until after Unforgiven. Before that, there was Breezy, the story of William Holden falling in love with a very young girl, and Bird, uh, his biopic of Charlie Parker, and those were the only movies that starred other people. Other than that, the studios were uncomfortable about getting into the movie-making business if Clint Eastwood wasn't starring in the films he directed. I think the other reason that I want to talk about him is because I care less about his films than I do his politics. Uh, I'm glad that there is a Republican in Hollywood who speaks for guys like us. <laughs> It took me a moment there to see if you were being like, serious or not. It's like Holly weird with their liberal messages that they're shoving down our throats. I'm glad there's at least one guy. Clint Eastwood would be the, be the first one to tell you, though. He is not a Republican. He is more of a libertarian. Well, he was at uh, something that is called the Republican National Convention. <laughs> Never forget. Well, he's pretty doddering in his old age. I actually feel like we, we ought to address the chair thing, if only briefly, since it has come to really define him in recent years. Do you remember that the same year that he had the infamous chair moment was also the year that he was in that? David Gordon Green directed Super Bowl commercial. The one where he was driving around Detroit and talking about no, how well, he, he's just walking again. around Detroit and he says, it's halftime in America. Wait, the that's a David are, Gordon Green directed commercial? I, I swear to God. Halftime in America, the teams are lacing up and so are we. We've been, we're down, but we're not out and we're going to come roaring back. It's a GM commercial. And I think it was widely interpreted at the time uh, as being a pro Obama Mm-hmm. commercial and it was in 2012 so it was an election year so presumably and it was of course seen by everybody and it was an incredibly i would argue that commercial was maybe the height of clint eastwood's um uh period of just transcending stardom and being and transcending ideology and everything and just being an, cool just being an all-around american icon uh somebody who americans would think represents them best their best selves or something uh and then he probably felt bad that people interpreted that commercial is being implicitly pro Obama. So he appeared at the RNC and the rest was history. Yeah. For people who don't know, just look up that clip on the internet involving him talking to an empty chair. I watched it again recently and it's actually worse than you remember. It. I never, I don't <laughs> think I've ever actually seen it. Oh, I watched it when it was live. I remember well, when, why are you watching the Republic national convention? Why not? I care about things. Uh, oh, well, because I'm a hardline social conservative. <laughs> yes, you are. I remember hearing in the afternoon, it was leaked that he was going to be at the Republican convention. And I thought, oh, man, that's that's tough. I mean, this is it's halftime in America guy. Like everyone loves him. This could do serious damage. And then like s- watching it and feeling simultaneous delight that this wasn't working and sadness for Clint Eastwood. Do you, do you remember at the very end of it? You, you didn't see it, did you? No. OK, at the very end of it, as he's trailing off. 
and he's trying to put words together. The, somebody in the audience yells, make my day. And he goes, uh, you, you want me to make your day? All right, I'll start it and you finish it. <laughs> Go ahead. And then as everyone goes, make my day. And then he, he gives this smile and this like thumbs up to the camera that's like, nailed it. <laughs> actually here though to talk about his movies yeah you know okay should we put uh clint eastwood's career in a bit of context sure he started off a journeyman character actor in the 50s he was uh under contract at universal his first movie is a little movie called revenge of the creature which is a you know b horror movie yeah sequel to creature of the black lagoon and he's in it uh for like 30 seconds as a guy in a lab who has a pet mouse yeah who i think he puts a mouse in his pocket or like it eats the cheese out of his hand or something like that from there on became a fixture of like b movies and guest starring in tv shows like maverick specifically he was on rawhide that's where he sort of made his stardom he did like seven seasons of that when um what happened was that no one really wanted to cast him in any leads so he actually got a job in um italy with the director sergio leone after everyone else that leone wanted turned him down (laughs) he was like fine i I guess i'll cast this clint eastwood guy and you know the rest is history as you say a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and uh the good bad the ugly good movies i'd recommend them right you know (laughs) yeah they're okay yeah uh, you give them a watch i think that (laughs) if we're going to talk about those movies the most surprising thing about them is that when they came out people in America hated them. And there was a weird... Wait, is that true? They were the fi- critics. They were financial successes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but critics were not fans. Um, what happened is that due to a weird um, distribution snafu, uh, the first and the second one didn't get released uh, separately. They were released together. And the critics just tore them apart. I think the only person who really liked them was Andrew Saris. Oh, sure. If you read Roger Ebert's review of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly at the time, he gave it three stars. And there's sort of a tone in it, kind of a condescending tone. Later, Ebert did a great movies essay about The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And he says, I liked the way he phrased it. He said, I was too young to value instinct over prudence. Pa- so so he thought that like you couldn't give four stars to a spaghetti western. Right? Uh, Pauline Kale at the time actually said that the good and the bad and the ugly, due to the its level of violence, she didn't even really believe it was a western. And it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, Clint Eastwood actually had quite a feud with Pauline Kale and that he really <laughs> took the digs because she never liked any of his movies. He took them very personally to the point that in, I believe it's the fourth uh, Dirty Harry film, The Deadpool, which takes place in Hollywood, there's a Pauline Kale-like character who's <laughs> brutally murdered by serial killer <laughs> uh if i can be very earnest about the good and the bad and the ugly for a moment i think uh the 15 minutes towards the end beginning with eli wallach running around the cemetery and then leading up to the mexican standoff which is like five minutes of nothing actually happening but the the music building and the tension building i think that 15 minutes is as good as any 15 minutes in any movie ever it's just an it, like if you were making an argument for why movies are an art form distinct from all other art forms i might point to that well, the thing about those three spaghetti westerns is that um, while Sergio Leone was very inspired by the American films, he's doing something completely different. If anything, they're pretty glacially paced for what people used to expect westerns to be. The fact that the general moviegoer really kind of latched onto it is 
it not only has something to do with Leone, but it has something to do with Clint Eastwood's, like, right off the bat, iconic performance as the man with no name. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that familiar with his... I've never seen Rawhide. I don't know much about his work before... He was actually kind of the sidekick character to the main guy. I've heard that he was... His performances on that weren't quite as lean as they would Mm -hmm. become in the Leone westerns. Is that the case? Yeah, what ended up happening is that supposedly the first script for Fistful of Dollars was very wordy. Um, and what Eastwood did and what he would do for every single script he would get uh, until the end of his career was he went through and just cut out the dialogue. Which not a lot of actors would do. No. <laughs> but by doing that, he delivers a performance that is so, like, once again, iconic, mythological. Like, when you think of cool, you think of Clint Eastwood when it comes to acting. Yeah, it's hard to put into words exactly what the charisma is. Because mm-hmm. um, he just kind of stands there squinting, talking through his teeth. Yeah, but there's it's it feels authentic. There's no, like, posturing to it. The thing is, he's a guy that's so aware of the way that he appears mm-hmm. like he's known to like make friends and then ditch friends when they don't do anything for him he got <laughs> hair plugs when he was in his 40s because he didn't want to appear bald well i mean whatever he was doing worked i think that he's as an actor he's somebody who had a very narrow range but really like within that range could be a great actor and one of the movies that we watched this week white hunter blackheart sees him going outside of that range and, and talking a lot not successfully in my opinion but we can get to that in a bit we should talk about high plains drifter which was his second directorial effort after the movie play misty for me which was his first and play misty for me is like a hitchcockian style film where clint eastwood plays a radio dj and who's like he gets a very psychotic female fan who wants to kill him it's definitely a small picture trying to show what he could do while high plains drifter is a direct almost comment on all the westerns he made up well it's very derivative of, Le- of Leone's style mm-hmm. with the with the pacing and the kind of I guess uh, for want of a better moral ambiguity of it all well and he plays a man with no name if not the man with no name um Sergio Leone's name actually appears on a tombstone at the end of the movie along <laughs> with Don Siegel's name and when someone asked Clint Eastwood like was that a homage to the filmmakers that have inspired you he said no I put him in there because I buried them as directors oh wow I mean he worked with Don Siegel again later yeah uh, uh well, on Escape from Alcatraz yeah. where Don Siegel was kicked out of the editing room and Clint Eastwood completed it himself oh okay there you go <laughs> <laughs> um, so High Plains Drifter is a very weird movie. How would you like sum it up, Will? I mean, the, the plot sounds pretty pedestrian when you put it into words, but Clint Eastwood is a High Plains Drifter. He's a cowboy who comes to town and immediately is just a bad person. Uh, uh, the town doesn't like him. He doesn't like the town. He rapes a woman. But I think we're meant to think that she wanted it. Yeah. That, that's, where, that's where things get a little hashtag problematic. I mean, High Plains Drifter... He plays like a ghostly figure who comes to this old West town. And the whole premise of the film is that he's taking revenge for something that happened to him and he's going to punish the whole town for it. And he, he takes on a role that's sort of like a half guardian, half wrathful god of the town. And like, are we supposed to perceive him as like a bad guy that wants to re- wants revenge or do you feel like we should get behind him? Something that I was thinking about when I watched this movie uh, is maybe a problem that I have a lot with a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, which may be more my problem than Clint Eastwood's problem, which is that I think that we relish moral ambiguity in movies that we don't think like the common classes are going to see. So my first instinct when I see a movie like High Plains Drifter is to worry about like uh, in in kind of maybe wrongheaded way about what the target audience is going to think about it. 
uh, reading about it, a lot of the critics kind of just dismissed it as like, oh, it's just another Clint Eastwood uh, Western, very derivative of his other work. Where if you view it like that, there's a bunch of like weird moral problems. That, like, like you said, he rapes a woman within the first 10 minutes. And then later on, it's kind of we're led to believe, oh, she wanted it and she likes it and she wants more of it. I, I'm not sure how to deal with that rape because it is presented kind of as a rape. Yeah, it is. Um, but on the other hand, she is, I think the movie wants us to think that she is a slut. Yeah. Uh, which is an ugly word, but that's what the movie wants us to think. And I, I mean, if you approach it, and this almost feels like me trying to like cover it and be like, oh no, but his character's supposed to be evil, so that's okay. But is it, does it feel that way? Like... Yeah, I don't know. Problem with talking about this is I actually don't know what I think uh, about it. <laughs> like when the movie ended, were you like, "Yeah, Clint Eastwood got revenge on these people"? No, the movie ends on a kind of weirdly mournful note. I think the movie has some maybe grudging admiration for the Clint Eastwood character, saying this like, "Like it's a dirty time and it's a uh, it's a dirty job and you need a dirty man to deal with it." But like a dirty Harry, even. <laughs> I think it's a movie that's kind of a logical outgrowth of what the Sergio Leone Westerns were, which, I mean, given the fact that Clint Eastwood has been co-opted by the right as this, you know, black and white, uh, straight shooting truth teller, the Sergio Leone Westerns, I mean, the title, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is ironic, right? I mean, the whole point of Clint Eastwood in the early days was he, he was this destabilizing force who really wasn't, he was like the worst good guy. And I think this movie is a natural extension of that. And kind of taken to its extremes. And in fact, as a, as a director, I think Clint Eastwood, with the exception of the Dirty Harry movies, has always been drawn to these kind of morally ambiguous characters. But then there's like certain rules that Clint Eastwood had about the movies that he made. Like his characters couldn't die. <laughs> they couldn't at the end be painted in too bad a light. <laughs> like that seems to be an actor who's very aware of his image and wants to control it in a way, no matter what movies that he makes. Clint Eastwood's movies are a little bit like, it's like something like The Searchers, where the fact that it's not entirely presenting a bad moral position, the fact that uh, the fact that it's ambivalent about what it's showing makes it more interesting than a movie that is more sure of itself. Mm-hmm. So then we have White Hunter Black Heart. So let's fill in the gaps of his career a little bit. So he continued pumping out movies, alternate, you know, acting in movies, kind of a lot of movies like Every Which Way But Loose. He actually and... didn't act in that many movies. He acted in kind of um, Where Eagles Dare. He did uh, Escape from Alcatraz and then Every Which Way But Loose. The Dirty and, Harry movie. And something about his career was that almost every single film that he acted in, even the ones that he didn't direct, they were produced by his company, mm-hmm. uh, Malpaso. So a movie like Tightrope, which is often cited as an, as an example of him undermining his screen persona, the director of that movie was, I think, Clint Eastwood's assistant director on, on other movies. And it's like the only movie that that guy is credited on. And I think it's the tightrope is an example of a movie that pretty much everyone acknowledges Clint Eastwood directed it. Yeah. Um, and like the third dirty Harry film was someone from his, you know, posse or the last film that Clint Eastwood actually starred in the trouble with the curve was (laughs) another assistant director from his company. Like, you know, he's not looking for Paul W.S. Anderson to kind of re, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> Paul. No, I was talking about the guy who directed Soldier, the David Webb People script, oh, yeah. which is Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood wow. film. All six so degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> but yeah, so um, really he only had like so many personas. He had the, you know, the Dirty Harry, 
the cowboy, and then the dub redneck who appeared in stuff like Every Which Way But Loose, Bronco Billy, uh, Pink Cadillac, and stuff like that. Have you seen Every Which Way But Loose, or is it Any Which Way But Loose? Every Which Way But Loose is the first one. Every Which Way You Can is the second monkey one. So uh, have you seen them? Nope. Okay, neither have I. Why would you? (laughs) (laughs) But in the 80s, he veered a little bit outside of his comfort zone, directing a little movie called Bird. Uh, yes. The Charlie Parker story. Who he supposedly knew personally when he was a teenager. He would go see Charlie Parker play in jazz clubs. Oh, sure. Why not? Uh, and kind of alternating what seems like more personal projects with Dirty Harry sequels. Uh, the the thing about the Dirty Harry movies, I watched uh, Dirty Harry, the first one again for the first time in a long time, just the other night. Uh, it's a very good movie. I'll, well, I don't even know if I fully believe that. I mean, it's it's a good movie, but I feel like in this time of uh, of strife and bad feeling towards the police, I'm a little bit less inclined to to give it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, like you don't see any of its like moral complexity. That well, like... I I don't think there is a lot of moral complexity in that movie. Feel free to write in and contradict me, but in that movie it has less moral complexity than his other movies in that one. It's like you have this tough cop who does the work that needs to be done and is facing these bureaucrats and their red tape. who are like, Oh, we can't admit this evidence because it was uh, collected without a warrant. And he's, and he's like, what about the rights of that little girl? You know, I mean, it's very, it's very kind of disingenuous. uh... Yeah. And what happens too, is that like he captures a killer Scorpio and then he gets out again and then he kills him that the, the other time. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, entertaining movie but i i I don't know well i love movies where good guys kill bad guys even (laughs) if it's in a fascist kind of way the thing but but then there's a movie like tightrope where he plays uh, like a somewhat dirty hairy like detective but somebody whose marriage is falling apart and who he's on the trail of this sex killer and he becomes to kind of get interested in the kinky stuff that he's that he's following Mm -hmm. so it's clint's cruising if you will (laughs) And I feel like with the exception of maybe some of the later Dirty Harry sequels and a couple of one-off things like, you know, Pink Cadillac or City Heat or stuff, I don't think Clint Eastwood is is a cynical filmmaker. I think that he actually believes in... I, I don't think he's an intellectual either. I think he actually is interested in and believes in whatever movie he's making at that moment. And I think that for somebody who's not all that smart, uh, he's somebody who's intellectually curious... So I think he actually believes in what the first Dirty Harry is saying. He believes that, oh, we got to get rid of that political correctness and, you know, cops have that power. But then I think he also believes J. Edgar, which is about, you know, what happens when a man in law enforcement has too much power. He's a libertarian, right? Whatever applies whenever, <laughs> that works for him. So I picked White Hunter Blackheart because I knew it was one of his weirder projects. The story is based on a novel written by the screenwriter of The African Queen, the classic uh, Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn film directed by John Huston. So this screenwriter went with John Huston to Africa before The African Queen started filming because John Huston really wanted to kill an elephant. Mm -hmm. And this is what White Hunter Blackheart is all about, is Clint Eastwood playing... um, He's... Basically, John Houston. It's John, and then is it John something Wilson maybe. or yeah, something? John Wilson. But but I mean, there is a Humphrey Bogart character and a Catherine Hepburn character. It's it's like I don't even know why they changed the names. And Clint Eastwood, as John Houston, is doing an imitation of the director to the extent that he can. I mean, it actually took me about twenty minutes to figure out if he was changing his voice. Oh, really? Because John Houston has such a very specific way of talking, and I could tell Clint Eastwood was trying to imitate 
those kind of speech patterns. Well, he imitates the speech patterns, but at the end, he still sounds like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so, so it's like, hello, I am John Houston. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I think that, as I said, Clint Eastwood, very good at what he does. Uh, Unforgiven, great performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not good at flamboyant, no. in my opinion. It doesn't naturally suit him. I think there have, there have been some critics who have talked about this movie and talked about the Brechtian quality of his performance. I think that's an incredibly generous reading of it. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Jonathan Rosenbaum said that. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, do you think White Hunter Blackheart is a good movie? No, I was kind of bored. Yeah, me too. I think it's a movie that really what it wants to say is that John Huston is, I guess, kind of a bad guy. But not really. But not really. And the thing, if you read about John Huston, he was a pretty bad guy. I think uh, White Hunter Blackheart is just kind of like a half-baked movie all around. It doesn't... You think it's going to be this almost kind of like father-son, buddy relationship between uh, John Huston and the screenwriter. Uh, and... The stuff about him shooting an elephant, I feel like in the movie, he says, it's not a crime to shoot an elephant. It's a sin to shoot an elephant. And I feel like the symbolic weight of that never quite, never quite comes across. You don't really feel it. There's a death at the end of the movie and you're like, what? Okay, I guess. And then like the last two minutes of the movie, which I think are supposed to really hit you hard don't no they don't and i think uh, there, there's just not a lot of consistency to the to the john houston character it's almost as if clint eastwood was like afraid to make him too unlikable yeah because like, there's the whole scene where he's talking to a colonial woman who says some anti-semitic remarks and he kind of shows her up and you're supposedly supposed... based on a true story that happened to john houston okay oh interesting and in it, so what happened was a woman was saying anti-semitic remarks and i believe in the john houston version he picks the woman up and he threw her in a pool Oh, well, they should have done that because in this one, he comes across as, you know, much more suave. <laughs> yep. Uh, and he gets in a fist fight because um, a waiter uh, drops some plates and then the uh, white boss yells at him. Yeah. I also don't feel that like Africa really comes across as it's not very atmospherically evoked. I think the the direction of the movie is just sort of pedestrian. So this brings up the question, is Clint Eastwood more of a journeyman? Yes. You think so? Yes. I feel like he, he's an auteur only because he has these very specific things that all of his movies have. Whether it be the way that he directs, which is that supposedly he does one or two takes and that's it. And then he wants to move on. And he has the same crew, basically, mm-hmm. from movie to movie. Yeah. they it, His movies definitely have kind of a uniform visual style. It's evolved over the years. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they, they do look sort of similar. And in recent years, all of his like big bloated prestige movies have all had this sort of like beige sheen to them. This is a good segue into what happened to Clint Eastwood. Like at one point he got so old, I think it was after Unforgiven where he's like, up until that point, he didn't really want to star with any other big actors. There was a big controversy at the time when he did Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with uh, Jeff Bridges. Okay. Which was that Jeff Bridges stole the movie from under Clint Eastwood and he did not like that. He also did City Heat with Burt Reynolds though. They were maybe the two biggest stars in the world at that time. Did you hear the story behind that? That Blake Edwards was the director of that movie and, and he got fired a few days into it? I couldn't even imagine directing Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds at the height of their of their power. <laughs> And at a certain point after Unforgiven, he was like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to make uh, films with good actors in them. And I'm going to take a step back. Uh, first of all, Unforgiven, masterpiece, right? Oh, yeah. I actually yeah. watched it yesterday just to give myself a refresher. It is a fantastic film, mostly because we're talking about this iconic Clint Eastwood. It's commenting directly on that character. At the same time, the script wasn't even written for him. David Webb's people wrote it for like 10 years before it was made mm-hmm. just as a normal screenplay. 
And but when Clint Eastwood got his, you know, mitts on it, it became all about him. I like how rigorously unsentimental the movie is and how unsentimental his performance is. I I think of the famous scene where he says it's a hell of a thing killing a man. Mm -hmm. Take away all he's got and all he's going to have. Like the way he delivers the line much better than I did. Like, I don't know. It's not, it's not even worth describing. No, just it. go watch and forget. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fantastic... just amazing. <laughs> that feels like the peak and comparing it to something like Gran Torino, which feels like that's his, the unforgiven for his dirty, hairy character. Well, yeah, that, that's what the, I think Clint would probably disagree on that. I don't think Clint is thinking about it that hard. But like, if you compare both of them, unforgiven ends with his character being forced into violence and just killing senselessly like he did. No, no he doesn't. Yes, he does. No. Unforgiven. Oh, well, in Unforgiven, he does, yeah. Yeah, in Gran Torino, but that's why both you can oh. compare both of them. Unforgiven, he knows he has to do this violence. Gran Torino, he sacrifices himself <laughs> like Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, with his arms outstretched. <laughs> what do you think of the prestige pictures? Uh, let's, Which I will mark at Mystic River and onwards. Well, you know how I kind of disagreed with Clint Eastwood being a journeyman? All his prestige pictures are journeyman pictures. Okay. It feels like he makes a movie... Whatever the first script that falls on his desk, he's like, yeah, I'm going to make this one no matter what. Hey, it's a musical about the Jersey Boys? Yeah, sure, why not? It's about um, a woman that dies in a giant flood? Yeah, sure, why not? It seems there's no passion behind these pictures at all. And they all have this sort of dreary visual style. Very subdued dramatics. The one good thing you can say about that is a movie like, say, American Sniper isn't quite... Even though I have a lot of problems with American Sniper, it doesn't have quite the rah-rah tone that, say, you know, Michael Bay's Benghazi movie does. It has that sort of unsentimental tone. Because it has that lack of passion that another filmmaker would bring to it. Exactly. But it's like, what prompts uh, Clint Eastwood to want to make a movie like Invictus? Which, for people that don't know, it's a movie about... Uh, Nelson Mandela uh, becoming president of South Africa and trying to unite the country around the rugby match in the World Cup. I mean, I admire, in a weird way, that he made Invictus, because it shows that he's interested in telling lots of different kinds of stories. But it feels like he just wants to win those Oscars. I don't know if he cares about Oscars. I think he likes to work. And I think this is where it comes back to the fact that he's not that much of an intellectual. I think that his taste is pretty much along the lines of what an Oscar voter's taste is, which is big, important subject matter, handsomely mounted and respectably told. Yeah, but him as a filmmaker, he is definitely a B-movie maker. Like, I think that's where his strengths are, probably. Yeah. Like, even American Sniper, which dramatically doesn't really do anything for people. Some would disagree with you on that. I mean, it was a huge <laughs> it hit. It was the number one grossing movie of 2014. But if you look at that final sequence in the movie, which is the snipers are trapped on a building, and there's a sandstorm coming, and they're, it's basically like a, sea, a mini siege film mm-hmm. in this big bloated uh, prestige picture, that stuff is... I was, I was very impressed by that, that at 85, he could accomplish a scene like that. It's kind of like you want him to take him aside and be like, go make those movies, Clint. I think the problem with him being not much of an intellectual is that you'd get a movie like American Sniper, which, what are your thoughts on American Sniper? I don't think it's very good. I think it's a very paint-by-numbers picture of a figure that, like, doesn't really demonize him that much, and it doesn't really do rah-rah, it's just kind of there. I think maybe this is coming back to my perhaps misguided concern about uh, morally ambiguous movies for the masses, which could be my problem. But the fact that American Sniper was the biggest grossing movie of the year when like 
it ought not to have been. I mean, superhero movies are the biggest grossing movies of the year. Something about that, I think, is a problem. I think American Sniper became emblematic of a certain kind of Iraq war revisionism, which is that, well, no matter what you think about the war, you have to admit that we have the greatest troops in the world. That film never questions what that sniper is doing as being right or wrong. Right. It doesn't doesn't really endorse or denounce it. Well, it actually sort of does endorse it in the sense that Iraq is depicted as basically being like a land of savages where they're just trying to barely maintain order. At one point, um, the sniper character kills a child Mm -hmm. and that never weighs on him for the rest of the film. Yeah, well, in the scene in the movie, it's it's shown he's shown being kind of broken up about it while he's doing it. And later on, he has to kill another child and he doesn't want to. And he does have PTSD, but it's not like uh, Steven Spielberg was going to direct the movie for a long time. And it's almost impossible not to ask yourself, like, what would have the Steven Spielberg version of this film? I think probably would have been more like Saving Private Ryan. Or it would have been like something like Munich, which kind of deals with those same themes. Yeah. So the movie doesn't question the war and yeah i find that iraq war it's a particular kind of iraq war revisionism that i think is uh designed to get our mind off of like why were we over there in the first place mm-hmm. i also think the movie the movie sort of sanitizes chris kyle as a historical figure because the book that he wrote that's the basis for the movie was basically kind of an anti-muslim screed so, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's nice that a lot of the things he said about Muslims isn't in there. But on the other hand, it doesn't really do justice to who he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, de- it depicts him as more of an un- uncomplicated hero yeah. than he was. The only thing that really tears the character up is the fact that some of his brothers died on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And I also think the fact that the movie was so popular speaks to something in America that wants to see Muslims get killed. Well, I mean, if you look at something like Lone Survivor or even Benghazi, those didn't do very well. I think the movie did well because it was called American Sniper. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. And it was it was marketed in a way that unlike Lone Survivor or Michael Bay's Benghazi movie, those movies were were badly marketed because they were basically only marketed to the right. American Sniper was marketed in such a way that uh, they kind of hit a, kind of hit a four quadrant audience. And uh, it wasn't incendiary enough to really offend people. But at the same time, I think its popularity is at least partly attributable to the fact that America, after having failed in the Iraq war, wants to feel in some way that they were on the right and that the people in the Middle East were savages that needed to be disciplined. That's actually what I think. This podcast got very political. Yeah. So Clint Eastwood, good guy, bad guy. Uh, I think he's just a man like all of us. (laughs) Did you hear the story of when he became mayor of his town, uh, Carmel. Carmel, that the reason he became mayor was twofold, that there was a law banning the selling of ice cream cones because <laughs> it was unseemly, and he wanted to build another level on his restaurant. And the first thing that happened when he was hired uh, to be mayor, which was a $200 a week job, was that he fired all of the construction heads part of the in the municipal board so he could hire new people that would be on his side. And he basically, he, it was, he just served a two-year term as mayor. He became mayor and he handed off the job to someone else to do the day-to-day affairs. So he was just kind of a figurehead. Okay, so he so he just wanted like to get the restaurant. Yes. Exactly. I know, and I think that he is, to this day, a very beloved figure in Carmel, right? Oh uh, yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah, I, I read a funny. Um, I don't remember who said it, but someone said that everyone loves Clint Eastwood, so they want to work with him, not knowing how difficult he is actually to work with or to get to know personally. Because Clint Eastwood is a guy that doesn't really give interviews. Yeah, and I think the interviews that he has done have been pretty un 
like unsatisfactory because he's not a man who's really prone to self-analysis. Except for one book, which is called Conversations with Clint, right? Yes. Written by Paul Nelson, who was a rock critic back in the day. And the book is fascinating because it's an interview with Clint that spans decades Mm -hmm. where this guy, Paul Nelson, was supposed to write an article for, I believe, Rolling Stone. Yeah. And it just never happened. So basically, Paul Nelson took this uh, assignment as an excuse to become friends with Clint Eastwood. And I think he somewhat uh, abused Clint Eastwood's trust because Clint Eastwood, like he was stringing Clint Eastwood along like, okay, when's this article going to happen? Yeah. And but Clint Eastwood is open in that book, which the book came from after Paul Nelson died. Someone found a box of cassette tapes. Yeah. And they just transcribed the interviews is that Clint Eastwood is open in a way that he never is in his interviews. At the same time, I find the book more interesting for the Paul Nelson factor because of the weird psychodrama that's happening with Paul Nelson uh, and, and the weird uneasy relationship they have. He develops almost kind of like a Rupert Pupkin-like relationship <laughs> with Clint. It, it The book actually begins with their very last interview session where it's clear that Clint is just trying to give him the brush off. <laughs> Like he's figured out what's going on. Which supposedly happened with a lot of Clint Eastwood's friends. Because <laughs> Clint Eastwood, um, I don't know. We, I don't want to get into his personal life. No, I want to. Talk about it. His personal life? Yeah, you just read a book about Clint Eastwood. I did. Let, let's get some dirt here. <laughs> Clint was a serial... Um, what is You're it? not going to say monogamous. <laughs> no, a monog- serial sleeper with of women. <laughs> yes, that's what he was. Even though he was married for decades. Uh-huh. with And his wife at the time was aware of what was going on. But she didn't really want to talk about it. Sure. Uh, Why would you want to rock the boat? You're married to, you're married to a national treasure. Only Clint because Clint Eastwood is having uh, three children out of wedlock. <laughs> and he was someone who was also very manipulative. It always had to be his way uh-huh. that things went. Uh, famously, his uh, long affair with Sandra Locke ended with a huge lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood engineered a way that his then kind of ex-girlfriend thought she was making a movie at Warner Brothers, but she wasn't. Clint Eastwood <laughs> was taking money from the Unforgiven budget oh, wow. and funding the development of a project for her that was never going to happen. <laughs> and she actually took him to court for that when she found out and they settled out of court. Wow. Yeah. Like, Just when you think you know a guy. So does it, you know, we talked about separating the art from the artist. Oh, I don't give a shit. You don't give a shit. No. Like, why would I care about this? <laughs> but I just like it on the level of gossip. Uh, <laughs> did you watch any of the uh, Eastwood reality show that was from a few years ago? No, I did not. This was the one that was about, God, was it about his, his, his wife? wife and... Who had a band <laughs> who just did all the instruments with their mouths. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> That's what it was. And I don't think Clint Eastwood wasn't on the show. Right? I think he appeared in the pilot being like, hey, how's it going, everyone? Can't, that was w- it. can't wait to uh, wish you well on the exotic and sexy adventures you're sure to have in this exciting locale. And supposedly his children were terrible. They also appeared in it. I think it made the news when one of his daughters burned like a $100,000 purse for some art installation. <laughs> terrible. And- <laughs> But you know what? On on the screen, he's such a cool guy. Clint Eastwood is like dad's favorite actor. <laughs> like, I remember my dad being like, Clint Eastwood, man, he's a real cool guy. Yeah, you should watch movies like Dirty Harry or Kelly's Heroes. Yeah. And then uh, and then was he like, you know, political correctness is really just white fascism. <laughs> Wait, does my dad sound like Clint Eastwood? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like my own dad is probably indifferent to Clint Eastwood. I don't know. Not a fan? No, he probably, I think he likes the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, uh, but he doesn't th- see him as like a pinnacle of cool like a lot of... 
I think my dad is probably smarter than that. <laughs> I think my dad can see through Clint Eastwood. You said a lot in this episode that you don't believe people are intellectuals. <laughs> I am the only smart man. <laughs> it's true. But Clint Eastwood is a fun actor to watch on screen. There's no doubt about I that. I love him. I'm always up for a Clint movie. A few months ago, I was just like, on a Sunday afternoon, I was like, boy, I could really go for kind of a lesser, lower tier Clint Eastwood movie. So I watched uh, True Crime from 1999. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, I give it uh, maybe th- uh, two stars out of four. Past the time, <laughs> how does it perfectly com- fine. How does it compare to Blood Work? Haven't or, seen or Space Cowboys. <laughs> uh, Space Cowboys, I saw back in the day. Can't remember. You see Clint's butt in that one. <laughs> I remember seeing Space Cowboys and having broken my glasses at the time and sitting in the front row, squinting at the screen, trying to understand what was going on. <laughs> I mean, it was a very complicated movie to follow. <laughs> I think at the end, Clint Eastwood is like riding a rocket and he's going to the moon or something like that. What I remember about the DVD of Space Cowboys was (laughs) that I borrowed it from my uncle. Because you needed to watch it again? Uh, Well, no, I watched it for the first time and last time on that DVD. But the DVD, okay, so Jay Leno has a cameo in Space Cowboys and the DVD has a whole like 30 minute extra that's an interview (laughs) with Jay Leno talking about reading the script and being in the movie. You know, I think Space Cowboys was kind of a lesson in my eyes to the majesty that was Armageddon at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like the old the old guy's Armageddon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so Clint Eastwood's next movie uh, in September, he has a movie about Sully Sullenberger, the guy who landed the plane in the Hudson River. America's dad, Tom Hanks, perhaps America's other most iconic actor will be in it. Are you excited for it? No. Okay, neither am I. <laughs> I haven't seen a Clint Eastwood film in theaters since probably Space Cowboys. Seriously? Yeah. Oh my god, I've seen them all from Mystic River. <laughs> Why? W- with the exception of Jersey Boys. Yeah. Because Why? I am of the opinion that uh, anything Clint Eastwood does is interesting just by definition of the fact that he did it. But hasn't he proven over and over again that the fact that he's doing it doesn't make it interesting? But it does because he's Clint Eastwood. Yeah, like, but it's not good though. Well, I didn't say good. <laughs> I, said, I said it's interesting to think about the fact that he made it. Like he's such an iconic figure and he carries so much baggage with him that even when he makes a movie like Hereafter, it's like, oh, it's interesting that Clint Eastwood decided to make this movie. I think that what you're saying is it's not interesting that Clint Eastwood made it. You're, it's interesting that Dirty Harry made this movie. I mean, if, if it's possible to distinguish between the two, sure, but I don't know if it is. All right, so what are we going to be talking about next week, Will? Uh, well, next week, we're we're finally going to like break up this sausage fest because we're going to be, and we're going to talk about somebody who is not like one of the dude bro directors we've talked about for the last 500 weeks. We're going to talk about Elaine May, mm-hmm. director of four movies. Uh, she did The Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin, not with Ben Stiller. I'm glad that you <laughs> specified that so people didn't go watch the Fairly Brothers yeah, terrible. Heartbreak Kid. She did A New Leaf with Walter Matthau and with herself. She did Mikey and Nikki, I think. Uh, yeah, Mikey or Nikki or Mickey and Nikki. Mickey, okay, I uh, haven't seen it. And she did a little movie called Ishtar. Yes. And, and, it, and of course, she's also beloved for having been one half of Nichols and May, the mm-hmm. groundbreaking comedy act she did with Mike Nichols. And so next week, we're going to be discussing a new leaf her first film mostly because she not only directed it she also wrote it and she stars in it and, and she disowned it yeah she did just she disowned almost every movie that she's made though yeah uh i don't know i think she was a fan of the heartbreak kid because it was nominated for a bunch of academy awards but we're not going to be watching a heartbreak kid because that one's more of a like a neil simon movie as much as it is a, an elaine may movie but i'm sure we'll mention it and it's it, great you should see it and elaine may you can't do a podcast about her without watching ishtar 
Yes. Famously known at the time as the worst movie ever. But it has its defenders. Yeah, there's a fam- famous Far Side strip where it's like the video store in hell and yeah. it's just all copies of Ishtar. Yeah. Um, the Gary Larson never saw Ishtar. Gary Larson said that he hadn't and he saw it later on a plane and said... It was fine. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we could... Oh, we should have saved that for next week's podcast. But, so, tune in next week. My name's Justin the Clue. My name's Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Uh, we have a very special Twisted episode. Will Sloan's real father is Clint Eastwood. Hey. <laughs> <laughs>